All right, kindergarten only is dismissed at this time. As a reminder, they'll be coming back in uh, when we have communion. All right, this morning is uh, what appears to be a standalone sermon, but it actually has very deep connections to the previous sermon series, and it has deep connections to the sermon series that's coming up. So we'll be in, if you would, be turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. Uh, that's where we'll spend our time this morning. And here's the key truth that we want to walk away with from this passage this morning, and it's that we are called to love others in patience and kindness in all aspects, listen, of their lives. With an abiding love, just as God has loved us in Christ. Did you notice what was not a qualifier? You. It's their lives and loving them as Christ has loved us before we could love him. If you've noticed, we've read a good bit of uh, 1 John chapter 4 this morning. You're actually going to get the rest of it as the benediction. And so uh, that is one of the great chapters on God's love for us, his people, and instructs us on that. And, and so just to, just to qualify up front where this is coming from, uh, the Monday morning men's group that I'm a part of, one of the things that we've talked about is memorizing some scripture. And since we talk often about the world will know who we are by the love that we show one another, it'd probably be good if we had an understanding of what that word love means, right? And so the word love in our culture has, uh, it's, it's been sentimentalized, it's been withheld, it's been abused, it's been thrown about. And so what I was challenged by is I need to make sure that I have the Bible's definition of love written on my heart, so I set about to memorize it. And you may say, well, golly, man, this is, shouldn't that be what you're doing? Yeah, but you gotta start somewhere, and so I thought I'd shoot low. Uh, well, actually, high, because this has been a very difficult process, actually, because to memorize it, to have it written on one's heart means it confronts you. And what I've done is prayed it daily. So when I wake up in the morning, I recite 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, and then I, I try to think through what it would look like as I go about my day and where it might most apply. Where might I might be most at risk to envy, right? Where might I be most at risk to insist upon my own way or to fail to be kind? And so I've been, I've been thinking through that, and so now I'm gonna hand it off to you to hopefully let it work on you some. Uh, but again, if we're gonna say that the world will know who we are by the love that we have for one another, we need a good, strong definition. And that's what this morning is all about. So the first question that I have for you uh, is actually not the one that's in your bulletin. I thought of a better question. Uh, and, and that is, what has most influenced and shaped your view and practice of love? Because something has, something is, correct? For many of you, it is the show that has this song. I'll be there for you when the rain starts to fall, right? If you're honest, that has probably shaped your view of love more than anything else in this world. And uh, we just had a conversation with some, I saw Kelly's face, he's like, ooh, probably shouldn't be, shouldn't be a thing. Well, the truth of the matter is, uh, it just does. We are shaped by culture. Probably many of you, your definition of love has been shaped by music, probably very significantly shaped by music because those are the words that kind of get way down in us. It's probably been shaped by um, your experience as well. But, but 
I would argue that culture probably plays one of the largest roles in our understanding and practice or failure to, is better said. And it saddens me that we are not shaped biblically. That we are not, that our definition of love is not shaped by God himself, his, his own character, as we see from 1 John 4 and as we see here from Paul. So uh, without further ado, let's step into the text and hear what Paul has to say to us. This is 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 6, and I want you to give your attention to the reading of God's word. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now, it's really important that we understand where this is occurring. This is occurring in the book of Corinthians where Paul is addressing a particular set of issues related to the Holy Spirit. And some of what was going on is a misuse of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, a misapplication. In fact, if we were to go back and read, one of the problems that's happening is they are not considering others in the practice of their gifts, right? One of the things you'll see in chapter 14, if you were to read it, is that people were speaking in tongues with no interpreter, and it was freaking out the visitors, right? And so he was saying, better that you say something clearly where everyone would understand the love of God than for you to speak in the tongues of angels. And oftentimes in the discussion on spiritual gifts, rarely have I ever, if I have ever heard, it said that love is the preeminent gift of the Holy Spirit. We know its absence, don't we? We sense it in each other. In fact, what is the most noxious thing in all the world? More noxious than Hitler, more noxious than Stalin, more noxious than any dictator we could come up with. It's a Christian who fails to love and seems to make excuses for why they do not. And there's a good reason for that because it's the truest thing in all the universe. This ethic of love that we're talking about, which is not sentimentalized, it is not cheap, and it is not to be withheld. So notice what Paul puts together here. In fact, the construction of this piece is so finely constructed that people assume that he must have taken this as either a song or an ode or a poem from somewhere else and just inserted it because its, its structure is beautiful. With what we just read in verses four through six, it has what they call the complement sandwich or chiastic structure. Notice there are positive things that begin and end that paragraph. Love is patient and kind. And at the end, love uh, does not rejoice with wrongdoing. It rejoices with truth. So those two positive things set the tone for what it is that Paul is communicating to us about the definition of love. But what's interesting is Paul has done this kind of stuff enough, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, the great Christologic hymn, that it's probably not him just aping things from other places, it's actually him breaking out in praise because he can't contain himself pen in hand. 
And so what we will notice is that the definition begins with the passive and active qualities of love, patience, and kindness, and then proceeds to go through all that is not either of those things. So we would do well to pay close attention. Is this an exhaustive list? Would it be wise for us to take this and say, all right, let me just, let me make sure I don't do any of these things today, and therefore I have loved because of what I have not done. No, that's a failure to understand the active nature of love. It is an act, not an idea. It's meaningless without action, correct? Like if I tell you I love you, but then I proceed to smack you upside the head, as so many abusers have done, what, what would you think? What would you believe about the words that have come out of my mouth? They lack action. So here Paul begins by saying love is patient. And we need to pause there for just a, a few moments and think about uh, not ourselves actually, but about the God who was patient toward us first because this is what he's asking us to reflect is the very patience of God. Now how has God been patient toward us? Now the terms that we use are long-suffering. Do, do you know that though God is perfect, he feels? He does, in fact, suffer. Is the Holy Spirit God? What does the New Testament say that your sin does to the Holy Spirit? It grieves him. Now is that just poetic language for effect? Is Christ God? What did he do as he looked out on Jerusalem, which he knew was perishing, and refused to receive him who had come as their savior, their Messiah, the one to fulfill all of their longings as expressed in the Old Testament, to fulfill all of the fullness of the promises of God? As he looked out on Jerusalem, what did he do? He wept. In Genesis 9, when God had to undo the beauty and the goodness of his creation because of the sinful hearts of men and women who existed at that time, and he flooded the world in judgment and preserved one family on the waters of judgment, kind of sounds a little like baptism in a sense, uh, what did it say that he, he felt as he had to do those things to save his people? He repented was grieved of making man. So did God make a mistake? No, God felt. That, that, that messes with us. And so oftentimes I think that when we think of love from God's perspective, we over-sanitize it. As if it has no feeling, no movement, no choice at all. And yet it does. He is long-suffering. When Christ cried from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he in Gethsemane said, if there be any other way, Lord, God was grieving for his people, right? In fact, Hebrews tells us that for the, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. Those words are not arbitrary. They're not meaningless. They're not there for poetic effect. It is, in fact, what happened. So God is long-suffering with us, isn't he? God is patient 
with us. God is all of the things that that word exhibits in the passive attributes. He's steadfast in his faithfulness. That means he's unchanging and unmoving. How important is that to us? What if God were as capricious as we accuse him of being? What if all of this was as uncertain as at times we seem to wrap around ourselves as a worn out blanket that just doesn't cover all the parts it needs to cover? Praise God, he is not. He is steadfast and faithful in his love and in his keeping of of his promises. He doesn't change. He endures with us, his people. Think of all of the things that just you have done this week or failed to do this week and you're still alive. If you don't think that is an act of his endurance, then you don't understand the story. And so just as God has been all of those things with us, just as he has endured us when we were not yet saints and even when we forget that we're saints, we too are called to do the same for others. We too are called to be long-suffering. We too are called to bear with and endure. Notice Paul says that first before he gets to anything else. If I were Paul, I might have started somewhere a little easier. Because I don't know about you, but, and we say this all the time, uh, be careful if you pray for patience. (laughs) You just might get a shot at it. And yet, it is the thing that we need to display most, is it not? Parents, is this not the heart of what you long to be able to do for your children? Spouses, is this not at times one of the deepest and most lovely wells that you could go to? And it's not you doing anything actively. It is the passive act of displaying love through long-suffering, through enduring, through not changing, for being steadfast. And because God has done that for us, we are to do that for the life of the world. We're to do that for others and not in a cheap way. Does God eventually... Say, enough. He does. There's a moment when justice must be served, when judgment will be rendered. But here's what's interesting. Is that in your hands? Paul tells us very clearly that no, your job actually is to feed your enemies. And in so doing, heap burning coals upon their heads, which we take to mean something it doesn't mean. To actually heap burning coals on someone, if we were to take that as an Old Testament reference, would be to purify them and make them family. Not destroy them from all the universe so that they can't cut us off in traffic ever again. Right? Or throw their pile of dead leaves in our yard. Or whatever it is that that people do to, to offend us. Doesn't take much, does it? And so we too are called to the passive act of patience with those around us. And again, think about how the world, does the world display patience naturally? 
If you think so, please, by all means, find your way online and go to any comment section under any story that you can find anywhere and see how quickly it devolves into the most Darwinian, odd, just horrible set of circumstances you've ever seen in your life. And it could be something as innocuous as who's the greatest basketball player of all time? Michael Jordan, end of story, stop talking. Thank you. All right, so, but, but even those kind of things that really are, that's actually a meaningless conversation, is it not? It's still a subjective set of circumstances. Now, if Wes Calton were here, he'd tell you there's actual rubrics and numbers by which this can be determined, but I don't believe it. There's just intangibles that you can't account for. But what's important is that we remember that, that because God was patient with us means that we are to be patient with others. And then the next thing he says is the active aspect, which is kindness. Now let me ask you, as far as the gifts of the Spirit are concerned, how many of you um, go around telling people you have the gift of kindness? Well, I appreciate your humility, but you ought. If you were gonna celebrate any gift at all, you saying you can speak in tongues or you saying you can see the future or you saying that you can, you can make uh, $10 come out of $1 or whatever it is that you think is a gift is, is pales in comparison to whether or not it's kindness. Now, how can I say that? Well, if we had read verses one through three, what we would see is Paul saying very clearly, if you speak with the tongues of angels and you have not love, you are a clanging symbol. Even if you gave your body up to be sacrificed and burned, it would be a worthless sacrifice apart from love. Love is the preeminent gift of the Spirit. Would that that would be the thing we would all seek after, and that would truly be Spirit-filled living. And that it would be evident that we are a kind people. That would stand out from the world. But instead, too often, I think what people get from us is all the ways in which we think they're wrong. And they're doing it wrong. If they'd have just left us in charge, I don't know if you've read history or not, we were in charge a couple of different times. And it didn't work out so hot for the world. And you may say, well, that was the wrong people. You know, that was the wrong people. That's why we had to have the Reformation and all those stuff. I'm not disagreeing with you. But it just doesn't tend to work out in history. Power tends to corrupt, does it not? Absolutely it does, apart from love the power that is derived from love. Again, not a cheap thing, not a sentimental thing, not a gooey thing. It's a very costly thing. And so just as God was kind to us, and how was he kind to us? He offered us mercy to relieve us from the burden of shame and guilt. Why? I don't know. He just did. Not because we were so awesome and he couldn't do it without us. In fact, he said, if you were to remain silent, I'll just make the rocks cry out. He could do it another way, but he chooses to do it this way with us, the Psalm 8 people, crowned with honor and glory, granted a dominion of sorts in Christ. And so he grants us mercy and he grants us forgiveness. That is all part of his active kindness toward us. He also grants us refreshment and encouragement. His steadfast love and his faithfulness is active and working at all times. He gives us the Holy Spirit to indwell us even after Christ had departed. He gives us gifts 
and callings and community and prayer and this book that's one giant love story, not to be avoided, not to be, have parts that we skip over because we don't like them, but to be able to read it and recognize the kindness of God that the story doesn't end at Nahum or Obadiah or Numbers. The fact that it goes on ought to say something to you about the love of God. Especially when those people look so much like us. Stiff-necked, hard-hearted, hard-headed. Not always, but too often. And so the same way in which he is kind to us, that he works for reconciliation, he is just, he's active in that justice, we too are called to do the same in this world. And if you want a good measure of how you're doing, ask yourself about your own kindness toward your nearest neighbors of all, which is your family, right? You don't get bonus points for being nice to someone you don't know. In fact, you want to rob your family of the privilege of seeing faith lived out, be mean to them and nice to the world. You will destroy their faith brick by brick. Better that you be consistent in both spheres. Better that you would be kind and display the active love of the Lord our God because again, that's how the world will know who and whose you are. There was something that we also read in 1 John 4 that we are actually perfected in and through our love for one another. Did you read that in John? Is that just lofty language? Or is it an actual act of maturing? So for those of you who would say, I don't feel near to God at all. I don't, I don't feel anything. I, I, what, well, what you might ask first is not where God is, but where you are in terms of your love for other people, in terms of you being patient and kind. And oh, by the way, you don't get to determine that. You don't get to say, well, by my lights, I'm kind. I'm being kind when I tell you what an idiot you are because I didn't say the other words that I was thinking. No, you don't get to decide. In fact, remember what Christ said. The world will actually declare who and whose you are. Not eternally, but in time. Francis Schaeffer was fond of pointing that out and I think it's something that we need to consider. If the people around us can't point and say there's anything different about us, then something is wrong and it is worthy of you considering. But too often what we do is our first consideration is to blame God for our lack. Can you legitimately do that given all that he's given? All of the resources? All that's available to us? Is it really his lack? Or is it our rebellion? It's our rebellion, isn't it? And so the good news is our rebellion doesn't have the final say. It's God who does. God who first loved us. That's really critical. We didn't love him first. We didn't go looking for him. He came looking for us. He's always the first mover. Regardless of what theological bent you have, you can't escape that he moved first. He created first. Christ died first. Christ rose first, Christ ascended first. 
Christ will return first before we can do anything about the new heavens, new earth, in, in any sort of eternal, lasting way. He moves toward us first always because he loves us. Now, you may say, what about the people doesn't move toward? Well, that's what you're for. You realize? You're the hands and feet. So the question is not for God who he's not reaching. The question is for you and why you're not reaching them. Why is it you aren't going to them? Why is it you who are making sure that they can hear, whether you go yourself or support missionaries who go? The lack, I can assure you, is not on God's side. It would be on our side. And notice how he moves from love being patient and kind to straight away say, love doesn't envy. Again, if you think about that, that's a fairly passive phenomenon. It's essentially saying that we don't look to other people and say, God has provided better for them than he has for us. And therefore, it's going to affect our relationship with God. You do understand that envy affects your relationship with God more than it does the person that you envy the stuff of. Because you're essentially making the comment that he hasn't given you what you deserve. And you're right. He hasn't given you what you deserve. But it's what you deserve that you have wrong. And so, when we envy, we actually are taking the path toward deconstructing and pulling away from God, not the other person. Notice it also says love doesn't boast. I love the fact that we sing, I will not boast in anything. In fact, that comes from Ephesians chapter two where it says that we essentially are saved in such a way that no person could boast. We don't have the ability to say that we did anything to save ourselves. We passively receive in submission. We don't actively go after. And so we have no cause for boasting whatsoever. And so those first two things actually have more to do with our relationship with God than it does the world. And then it goes on to say it's not arrogant or rude. How many of you are out now? Insist on its own way, I think that clips all the rest of us, right? Think about how these things that it's not is, it all affects relationship, whether it's relationship with God or relationship with other people, and we need to make sure that we read it that way. If you're going to insist on your own way, and you may say, well, Cameron, you're Presbyterian. <laughs> you kind of insist on that, don't you? Yeah, convictionally, I do. But I didn't come up with it. And it has to do with kind of a reading of the Bible and an understanding of Scripture. And you may say, well, you insist on the liturgy. Yep, again, convictionally so. There's things, yes, that we insist on, but it's not for our own way. We insist on it so that the most can be seen of the love of God for his people. And that's just what we have come up with and decided best does that for our context. And so then it goes on to say, and this is tough, not irritable. How many irritable Christians you know? Resentful. What allows you to not be resentful if it's not the love of God and recognizing his role as your great provider, giving you everything you could possibly need? And then doesn't rejoice with wrongdoing. How many of us want to just dance at the graves of our enemies? Dance on the graves of those who fall who don't think like us. Dance at the funerals of the ideas 
and the people that hold them because we act as if we were always right and always sovereign, which we are not. And so we don't rejoice at wrongdoing because always, and this is where the Old Testament prophets are so good at showing us what this doesn't look like. Notice that when we went through Habakkuk, and Habakkuk was arguing with God. Why did he argue with God? Because he didn't like it? No, if you remember, Habakkuk says, God, this is going to affect your name, not mine, yours. And so actually Habakkuk was wrong at the top of his lungs about the most right thing of all. He was actually fighting for God's glory and notice he was willing to be patient and wait. He says, look, I don't agree with this stuff, but I'm gonna stand my watch until you tell me what needs to be done and I'll do it. And so when we rejoice at wrongdoing, what we have to recognize is that what you're rejoicing at is the glory of God being diminished in one of his image bearers or a circumstance that's costly to him. But Paul encourages us, don't, don't rejoice at that, rejoice at what is true. Now here's another word that we encounter that has taken on a really strange life of its own in our culture. And we don't know how to define it very well. So what's true? Well, we're well north of postmodernism that basically said everything's relative. I don't even know where we are now in terms of post-post-postness or pre-ness of something else or some, some enlightened something or other. I'm not sure what they're calling us now, but we seem to have not benefited from that idea at all. And so we've gotta be able to say what's true. So how do we know what's true? Everything and anything related to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That you know is true, that exalts him and glorifies God among any and everything else you could try to figure out, those things are most true. Some things don't bear on that necessarily, um, not directly. I don't think the exact amount that gravity is or isn't has any real impact on the person and work of Christ as it were. But the things that matter the most, which Paul is talking about here, the interpersonal, interrelational is what he's pointing to. And so we need to be able to rejoice so quickly at the goodness of God displayed in us, in our friends, the displays of Christ in those around us. We need to be a complimentary, edifying, encouraging people. That's what it means to rejoice with what is true. And yet, what do we withhold so often? What do we not share because we think it's strange? And then you feel like you're stuck in some sort of, like if someone says something nice to you, you gotta come up with something nice back to them in some sort of weird reciprocity patronage, right? Like somebody comes up and shares something with you, you're like, oh, those pants fit today. Yeah, that's good, right? We're just always kind of fishing back and forth instead of, and, and listen, for those of you who know me, like you know me, not, not just whatever you think I am from up here, but you really know me, you understand that one of my great difficulties is to receive a compliment. I just about can't do it. And I just about won't do it, which is dumb because it's robbing others of the ability to rejoice with what can be true, what's being declared as true about what Christ is doing in and through me. I had a friend of mine take me to task on this just recently. 
guy named Steve Marusic. He's a pastor in Brownsburg. And he had paid me a compliment. I was like, yeah, well, you know, I'm dumb. And so he, he's like, man, stop. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to edify what's true about what I see Christ at work in you. In fact, it's not even about you. Whoa. I hung up on him. <laughs> Blocked his number. That's how I love, right there. Zero sum. <clears throat> no, I, I was deeply grateful for that conversation. Um, and I think we're all that way. We, we, we just, we feel indebted whenever somebody says something nice to us. And you shouldn't receive, especially when it's about Christ at work in you. And we need to do a better job of being able to see this. One of our problems is we're blind to it at work in each other. Right? We don't know, and this saddens me, we don't know when prayers are being answered in our friends' lives half the time. Because we just don't talk about it. We're not keeping up with the things that probably matter the most. We don't know when God is at work because we're so superficial, we're so caught up in our own thing instead of being able to see where God is doing wonderful things that would actually help perfect our faith, perfect our love, perfect our maturity in Christ. So we ought to be the people who, of all your neighbors, by virtue of who you claim to be in Christ, People would say they are, and this is not bragging or boasting, they are the most patient and kind people I know. And when something's true, those folks know how to throw a party. Those folks know how to rejoice. They know how to get excited about where God is at work in the world. Listen to what Leon Morris says about this. He says, love is concerned to give itself, listen, not assert itself. Another way of saying that is impose itself. You may say, well, I don't know if I agree with that. Didn't Christ assert himself in the Yeah, but we're talking about you, not Jesus. Right? And you're not to assert yourself for self's sake. You are to offer yourself for the good of others. You, to are, you are to esteem yourself as greater than others. You're to outdo one another with zeal. I just quoted a bunch of scriptures. So let me ask you, so how has... God loved or is he loving you by being patient with you? This is a great thing for you to think about this Lord's Day Sabbath so that you could have something that maybe you could celebrate today to remember the goodness of God because he's been patient with you and by virtue of the same question would be about his kindness. Where's God been kind to you this week? And if you can't answer, take heart, right? but learn to see. Get active in recognizing that the Lord was both patient and kind with you this week, whether you saw it or not. The question is, are you going to develop in the power of the Holy Spirit, the true spiritual gift of seeing where God is patient and kind with you so that you might grow in love? And then what are some ways in which you are loving others in patience and kindness? Again, it's, you're not being super humble by saying, we shouldn't even ask those kind of questions. We should just let it be. No, you should pause and reflect on yourself, which is what the scripture calls us to do. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you where you're being patient and kind. Celebrate first. It's Lord's Day. On Monday or Tuesday, ask him how you're failing. Don't ask him today. You may say, well, why don't you stop asking us? Well, yeah, I, got, I got to prep you for Tuesday too, by the way. All right, let's turn back to the text. And read verse seven. He's gonna conclude with a flurry. 
of things that he's linked together that are important. They may actually have some sort of, of linkage to them. Uh, they do all matter. Um, but I don't know that there's necessarily a linear flow to them. You could make one out of it, but that may be pressing too much on the text. Listen to what Paul says, verse seven. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And we need to put in parentheses that are true. All things true, because it's linked to what has come before. And so when it says it bears all things true, don't forget what we just studied in John, right? What are you guaranteed to do by virtue of your relationship with Jesus? What did he tell you was gonna happen? You will suffer. That just doesn't sound all that much fun. You may say, well, I think he was just talking to the disciples. Again, let me remind you, we did read First and Second Peter, which was not to the disciples, it was to the people of God. And Peter said, by virtue of your relationship with Jesus, you are going to suffer in some measure. So that means that you bear up under what is true. Now, are there any current challenges to biblical truth in the culture? Well, there's quite a few, actually. We're trying to do some sort of interesting scientific, actually, it's not scientific dance about what life is, as if we really hadn't, hadn't figured it out yet. So we have to bear up under what is true. That means whether we like it or not. There's just certain things that are true. They don't always feel good. They don't always fit with our current plan. But they always bless, encourage, and allow us to grow in Christ. And then it says, believes all things, which is linked to this, meaning you've got to believe what is true of Christ. Again, whether you like it or not, whether it fits your narrative or not, whether it answers all of the questions that you currently have or not. My own experience as a deep questioner, which by the way, hasn't gone away. You understand. There's been many questions that I've had about the Bible over the years that have been progressively answered in time. There's many questions I still have. But because the Lord has been gracious to answer some of them over time, guess what I now, how I now feel about those questions? I feel differently. They're not, they're not a means to escape the faith, right? And go live in some bar somewhere that plays rap music all the time, like, like for some reason I would think was cool if I wasn't a Christian, Right? But what it allows me to do is trust that those questions will be answered. And that God will faithfully show why he said those hard things in those hard places. And so we bear all things, we believe all things true, and we hope in what is true, which is that Christ is gonna return and make all things new. That this is not the end. I watched a short film, a documentary about uh, an American philosopher, I think his name was Henry Longinet. Doesn't sound American, he sounds French, but he's American. It's called Being 97. He's 90, he was 97 years old. He wrote a book on death, right? And he said very clearly, I don't know why we fear death because there's nothing after. But here's what's interesting. In that Being 97, and he says this, he says, but now I'm convinced I was wrong. 
Now, he doesn't make a profession of faith, and he's not necessarily saying there's anything after. What he's saying is, no, we should actually fear because there is nothing. And it's a heartbreaking 18-minute film of a man so lonely and so broken. He weeps at one point. He's listening to music that he and his wife used to listen to. She's been dead for some years. And he said, my lot is now to wait to die. So if you want to do that, rush out and buy his books, and you can figure out how to do that if you like. Or more, hope that this is not all there is, and that hope should affect how you live now, by the way, right? So please hear me. For those of you who may wonder, well, doesn't that just mean you, you just basically sit around and wait for, to die for heaven to come and things get better? No, you actively participate in the unfolding redemptive story of hope so that others may witness what hope looks like embodied and resurrected in a believer. And then it says, um, finally, uh, that, that hopes all things and endures all things, meaning that you will endure with others who are not yet saints, who have forgotten that they're saints, who are crusty young saints, crusty old saints, crusty midlife saints, right? The whole gamut. Because love compels you to, because you, you crusty saint, have been loved of God. And that continues. And so, C.K. Barrett captures this well. He says, no hardship or rebuff makes love cease to be love. So the questions that I have for us is how has God loved you? How, is he, how did he bear up under you? Right? How did he bear what was true about you that he knew to be true about you before even the foundation of the world in his electing love? How patient was he? How, how much did he have to bear and endure from you? And how has God believed in you? Believed in the image that he placed in you. Believed in the gifts that he's given to you. I know that sounds strange to say, but he does, and he can believe because of the finished work of Christ, not the unfinished work of you. And how is it that God has hope in you and what you can become because of the finished work of Christ, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in you? That he doesn't just call it because it's a waste of time from here. No, there are still more beautiful chapters of the redemptive story to be written. No, I didn't just say there's new revelation. What I did say is there are manifestations, applications of the revelation sealed that are worth this world seeing. And we should want to participate in that. And again, he's endured. How much has he endured and hung with and hung in and how has he used the community of people around you to display those four things to you from him because of who they are in him? And how are you displaying those things to those around you? Again, worthy of your meditation this Lord's Day Sabbath. So 1 Corinthians 13, four through seven teaches us that we are called to love others in patience and kindness. Two words you ought to spend a lot of time on. And I know we don't because we don't want to be tested on it. We don't want to be confronted with it. We ought to ask other people. 
Like I, I recently asked uh, some friends of mine who've been friends with me for a lot of years, who have a lot of blood in the ditch with me. I asked them, I said, what makes it hard to be my friend? I'm not their pastor, so it's, it's a different level of relationship in some respects. And both of them were very candid, which I like, by the way. I like candor. And it was very helpful to me. It helped me to think some things through in terms of patience and kindness. Because again, you may think, Man, I'm being so patient. I'm being so kind. It's ridiculous. Why isn't somebody noticing some of this stuff? But we always have a distorted view of ourselves, don't we? We're never as loving as we really thought we were. So would that we would find some trusted people around us to ask these questions of. Parents, if you have courage, ask your children. You may say, I'm not handing them that hand grenade. No, you've handed them plenty, I'm sure. And they already have an opinion on this matter, whether you ask them or not. Ask some people close to you. Ask your spouse how you're doing in this regard. Again, I'd probably give it to Wednesday on this one, Thursday maybe. Maybe right before you go on the men's retreat, guys, and you can give a couple days. But if we're afraid to ask the question, then we've already answered the question, haven't we? In some measure. And then it also teaches us that in all aspects of our lives, uh, that, that we are to love others in their lives with an abiding love just as God has loved us in Christ. Listen to what Gordon Fee says about this. He says, love is not an idea for Paul. Not even a motivating factor for behavior. It is behavior. To love is to act. Anything short of action is not love at all. So what a wonderful gift that we have that we get to, to partake of the Lord's table this morning. One of the greatest displays of the act of the love of God that we could wit bear witness to in all of history. Amen? That we get to see, yet again, in just common elements, broken bread and juice, that, that speak to the love of God that he, in and through his son, did what was necessary to save us, what was costly to him, but gift to us, grace and mercy displayed in this meal that we'll take together. Being that, if you're not a believer, you've not professed faith in Christ, you should just let these elements pass. It's a terrible lunch, as it turns out. It's a great spiritual feast. It's just a bad earthly lunch. So just let it pass by for now. If you want to have a conversation about that with one of us after the service, be happy to have that conversation with you and walk you through what it looks like uh, to profess faith in Christ and what that means. Um, if you currently harbor in your heart a level of unforgiveness that's not patient or kind, that doesn't actually reflect the saving love of God, that you basically are saying, that person can burn in hell for all I care, you shouldn't take at this table either. That needs to be dealt with first, and then you can come to the table with great joy on another occasion. But for everybody else who professes faith in Christ, for everybody else who's struggling to be patient, who's struggling to be kind, who's struggling not to insist on their own way, this table is for you. This is to nourish you to do that. You are confessing by taking, not that you have been patient, not that you have been kind, but that you need help doing those things. You need nourishment in the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish those things. Amen?
So let me remind us of the words, if the elders would go ahead and come forward, of the words of our Savior on the night in which he was spent the last meal with them and he'd be crucified the next day after his trial. He wanted them to have something they would see often. He wanted them to have something that would cause them to remember him always. And he passed it on to us as well. He took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body and it is given for you. And in those words, what he was saying is that he was going to bear the totality of our sin, past, present, and future. And no, I don't understand how the math works. But I'm glad it's true. I don't need to understand it. And also that he would bear the full weight of God's wrath toward every single one of those sins on our behalf as it held him on that cross until it was finished. So as you receive the bread this morning, if you would give thanks that God has loved you patiently and kindly and remember when the one comes back, what happens in heaven? It was a party that your name was displayed in all of heaven when you came in and it was far crazier than anything you've ever seen. Would that we would have a, a cognizance of heaven breaking out in a party every time a sinner comes. It's how important it is to, the, to, to God himself and all of creation and the angels too. So hold that bread so we can take together as family, declaring by taking that God's patient and kind in Christ. Let's pray.